Hello, and welcome to Tech Connects, DICE's podcast where we dig into the topics on tech hiring, recruiting, and careers that matter to you. I'm your host, Nick Kolakowski, and I'm going to talk to great guests every month about the current state of the tech careers world, including the tech job market, the hottest tech skills, what companies are doing to attract and retain tech pros in a historically tight market, and much more. Our next guest is Ed Frederici, who's CTO of AppFire, which is a company that builds apps that boost enterprise collaboration and workflows. He's focused on ways to enhance the functionality of companies' software ecosystems, especially if they're trying to manage projects and services across multiple platforms and tools. That gives him fascinating insights into key issues such as automation, democratizing data, acquisitions, and knocking down internal silos so tech pros can work more effectively. So with all that, let's listen in. Um, thanks for being on Tech Connects. Uh, it's, it's absolutely wonderful to have you. Uh, you are the CTO of AppFire. And before we dig into all the interesting things around automation and project management and everything else, I just was wondering if you could give a quick breakdown of what AppFire is for, for those who don't know and, and, which, and as CTO, what you're doing there. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Nick. I appreciate sure. the opportunity. Um, AppFire in the simplest form, is a company that builds uh, applications that either enhance the functionality of an ecosystem, like Atlassian, Microsoft, Monday.com, Salesforce, or allows data to flow amongst those uh, tools and ecosystems with the goal of making the knowledge worker's experience better, richer, fuller, and uh, more complete. Cool. So our tagline is we make workflow. And really what we do is just break down silos, democratize data, you know, a knowledge worker works with data. We want all data to be at your fingertips. The interesting thing, so for example, I was, I was talking to Dylan Etkin the other day, the guy who was the found, one of the founding architects of Jira. And we were talking about project management and data silos and flowing and so on. Um, I was talking to a few other project managers as well. And there's been a lot of chatter lately about the power of automation, especially automation in the context of generative AI and all these other machine learning tools and models and so on that are coming online. Um, and so you, you have sort of this, this grand hope that, in, that automation and AI will help kind of speed these processes in terms of breaking down data silos and promoting collaboration and productivity and so on. But, you know, and you well know this in, in terms of management, management involves people managing and there's, there's a human element and a manual element. And so it seems like there's a bit of a tension there. And I kind of wanted to dig into how you see it because you're in this unique position in terms of how you're thinking about automation and how to automate things in an effective way when it comes to workflows and IT management, but also making sure that things stay on track. Because it's a complicated, huge problem that I'm sure is probably an obsession. For sure. Um, I, I, not a day goes by that AI and what AI can do for us is not a topic in Slack or one of my meetings, right? It's top of mind for everybody. There's a lot of press going on about it, a lot of hype. Um, so for me, and I think for us, what AI does is remove the mundane and allows the individual to focus on the priority and the st strategy, right? So some people think, you know, AI one day is going to replace this function or that function. Generally, that's not the way we think of it. We think of it as a force multiplier and a way to make you uh, able to focus on the things that matter, not the things that don't. Okay. So if you think about it, the simple one, Email. I hate email. I get a lot of email every day. I have an AI tool that responds to the vast majority of my email on my behalf. 
Is it taking over that function? It's not. It's enabling me not to read. You know, I get about 300 emails a day. Most people probably do. That's a waste of time for the vast majority of those. The 5% that matter, I still handle completely. And then the AI handles the rest. So it's not disintermediated me from the process. It's just enhanced the process for me so that I have more time. I mean, that definitely makes sense. Do you think that I sometimes you read these things where, you know, the, the future, the future is breezily predicted by certain pundits and analysts is that automation is going to sort of take over everything to such an extent that, you know, vast swaths of the production process, the software development process and so on are going to be basically out of sight, out of mind. Do you think that that's ever actually going to happen? Or do you think this is always going to be a, a sort of a human intensive thing going forward? I think there's always going to be a human element. Um, I saw a meme the other day um, that said, are you afraid that AI is going to take over your job as a software developer? Well, you need requirements, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's true. And so yeah. it, it, that's not the way it's going to work. So look at someone like Copilot, right? We use Copilot internally. It's a great tool. We accept a large percentage of the suggested code. It makes our developers faster. But what is it doing for you? It's not writing the complex business logic. It is creating small snippets of code that do routine things for you. It is allowing you to analyze code faster and be more productive, but you're always in that mix. And it's always the creativity and the intelligence of the individual using AI that is achieving something greater because it has, we have the capacity or the ability to use, you know, generative AI, large learning models, whatever. Um, same is true for support. So look at support. Support is an amazing place where you can use AI in your workflow tool set. If you think about the support process, when you first come to a portal or a website to go and ask a support question, the knowledge base articles and those things that are presented to you frequently first are called deflection. It's the ability to answer your question without using a human resource. AI helps a lot because it's very intelligent. It can give you code snippets and samples and those type of things. And we do and will use that in order to provide a very high quality uh, support experience that is without the use of an individual. But ultimately, there is a person on the other side, or frequently there's a person on the other side, who is making sure those code snippets are right and are doing the approval process of saying, yes, this solves that problem. And they're the people who are doing the, the really complex stuff versus the, I forgot my password or the repetitive type of task. So I really don't think it's a replacement. I think it's an enhancement. Um, and certainly there probably are some functions that are at a risk of having a larger percentage of their work taken on by AI, but I don't think it ever disintermediates the person completely. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there's just too much opportunity for chaos in there. If you leave it, you know, to a system that you don't really have that sort of attention and, and, and eyes over. Um, the other interesting thing, it seems like you deal with a lot at AppFire, and this is also another thing that I've been discussing a lot with tech professionals is the issue of scalability. Um, and, in, for everything, whether it's customer service or software development, even with automated tools, all of these startups and larger companies and so on are wrestling with, you know, trying to, you know, all the resource issues and everything involved with growing something to an enormous size. Um, so AppFire has a number of products that are designed to scale. Um, and I was just wondering, I mean, you obviously have the products, but there, there's a philosophy or an idea behind them. And I'm just wondering kind of what's what's your approach to scalability? Like how should people think about scalability and resource management in that context? Because it's just, it's something that comes up over and over again with everybody that I talk to. 
Yeah, no, that's a great topic. So at fire itself is growing very, very fast. So we're safe, facing that exact same challenge um, mm-hmm. that we're trying to solve. Right. And we are a very much a people centric, people first company. And when you talk about what's involved in solving problems, it's people, processes and tools. Right. And people is always the most important thing. If you have really competent, really well-trained, really engaged staff, that's ultimately what allows you to scale. You can automate and use AI or other things on those processes, but you have to have the people who understand how to implement them, how to use the automation to solve the problem, who know what to do when there's a complex issue that automation can't handle. So we definitely have a ton of tools that, again, take the simple task away and allow you to focus on the important task. But it's people who are in the mix, solving the problems, doing the things. Um, if you look at workflow and automation, when you go from small to big, you go from manual to, to truly automated. It frees up time, allows you to do things. Administration, right? Mm-hmm. If you are small and you have one small jury instance and maybe 10 developers, communication, understanding, all those things are easy. If you're a giant enterprise and you have 50 jury instances and maybe you have Jira, Bitbucket, uh, GitHub, all those type of things, Azure DevOps, and you need to bring those together, those tool sets allow you to do that and bring all that information to a centralized hub, make it flow back and forth and understand what's happening in your organization without the need for spreadsheets, lots of questions, right? If if in a normal organization, as you begin to grow and you're looking at developer metrics, you frequently will go ask every manager to tell you who's working on what, what are they doing, what's the status? You use those tools that are, we build and others build to drive the business intelligence for you to map out those processes. It frees up the person and gives you a line of sight to what's happening that grows with your business and does not require massive manual attention. Yeah. And and that makes sense. But even with, I mean, the, the sheer complexity of it with, with the growth and, and monitoring our things seems like that you would inevitably, no matter how smooth your process or whatever you you'd have, bottlenecks, you know, and, and especially for those people who are kind of newer to project management, new to these kinds of tools and so on. Um, I'm just wondering, like, kind of what are the most common process bottlenecks that pop up, especially in scaling? And then how do people usually kind of maneuver past them? Sure. So um, there's a couple of ways to look at that. It's really boils down again to people, right? If you try to have perfection in your process, it's going to slow you down because you can never get to perfection. So your Mm -hmm. process has to be good enough to achieve your goals, has to be lightweight and non-burdensome. And then individuals and teams have to have autonomy to go out and do their tasks and accomplish them, right? So one of our our mantras is that teams choose tools, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't mandate what tool set you use. You go choose whatever tool set you want. What we mandate are the measurements and goals and guardrails that go around those tools so you can go choose whatever you want but maybe it has to be able to report a specific status or statistic back to us and then we use tools to blend that data together into a single pane of glass so that you have the right reporting and insights that are there Um, so the bottlenecks i see are people clinging to manual processes as they grow that just eat up a lot of time and then trying to force every you know it's a square peg round hole type of problem if you force every team in your organization to try to use the exact same tool set, the exact same process, it frequently doesn't work. So if you look at look at us, for example, we have 54 scrum teams. I have scrum teams that do just support. I have scrum teams that could do greenfield development. I have DevOps scrum teams. 
a DevOps engineer in that process works very differently than someone doing greenfield development. We have different workflows for them, different tool sets for them. And then we just blend that data together for insights um, and collaboration, but we don't mandate it. And so it's really a, a people first, team first process and automation to support that. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. It just seems that everything that we've been discussing in terms of you know, scalability and everything, um, sometimes you talk to newer project managers and and they think that they've gotten a handle on something, but then they suddenly blink and realize that they've accidentally introduced 200 new touch points into a process and that it's about to go insane because now you have 200 new bottlenecks. I mean, to your point about the manual aspect of it, that trying to introduce sort of too many of these things can can potentially lead to that. Um, I mean, so that's, I mean, that's the other thing too. We were talking a little bit earlier about knocking down silos and sort of boosting collaboration and everything like that, which is vital. Um, you know, obviously the more information that gets shared between teams, it's better for the end product. It's better for management. It's better for dealing with those bottlenecks. Um, and I'm just, I mean, when you hear people talking about knocking down silos within organizations, Sometimes it seems almost like a tool thing. Like if, you know, people will say, if we get on the most ideal project management tool, miraculously, we're going to solve all these silo issues and these info issues. But then also sometimes you see it as a cultural issue. Like these teams simply aren't talking and the management structure isn't set up in a way that facilitates, you know, cross team collaboration and things like that. Um, And I was, I mean, because you have insight into this, I was just wondering what your view is on this. I mean, is it, more of a tool thing, more of a collaboration thing. I mean, how do people, how do you actually knock down these silos? I mean, people talk about it, but how do you actually do it? Yes. So for me, it's always culture trumps tool in this, right? Because the mindset issue, uh, mm-hmm. you have to be motivated, willing and engaged to break down the silo. If I want to still stay siloed as an individual, no tool set fixes that because I will end up staying siloed. Um, one of the things that I've always looked for is areas where there's what I call unproductive ownership. People should take pride in their work. They should love what they do. They should not do it to the exclusion of sharing it. So there's the three C's I kind of go by, communication, coordination, and collaboration. I ask teams to make sure, yes, you own it. Yes, it's yours, but don't own it in a way that prevents you from communicating what you're doing to the other teams so that you're coordinating with them and you have the opportunity to collaborate with them, right? And so if you have transparency in every activity going on across your organization, you still have very effective teams that can work on the things important to them, but they have the ability to share code bases, make sure they're not duplicating effort. Others can take advantage of what's happening. If you work in a bigger organization where you have interdependencies amongst teams, a silo destroys the collaboration and the dependencies between teams and being able to communicate what you're doing, when you're doing it, how you're doing it makes it so that that interdependency works and you all can deliver and trust each other to get your tasks done. It, it, it seems also like one of those things where companies potentially start out with good intentions about that culturally and enact everything as you were just describing, but then there's also the need to kind of keep it going and kind of develop a culture where people are sort of actively engaged in ensuring that there's transparency and everything else. And I wonder if that's on a tactical level, how a company could carry that off because it seems like that's something that company, you know, they, they do great for a quarter and then boom, all of a sudden it's back to reverts back to the old ways. Um, yes. Yeah. You know. Success can drive that behavior in a negative way because as you succeed and there's more pressure to deliver more product, do more things, you start paying attention to timelines and promises to clients, 
a natural tendency is that I can do it myself. I'll get this done and you silo, right? Yeah. And so there's a bunch of ways to get around that. Um, one is just like pulse surveys, you know, um, engagement surveys across your organization to see how people are feeling and see if it's begun to uh, degrade down to a silo effect again, right? We have tools that measure um, just simple um, cycle times across all of our projects and all those touch points, right? And so mm-hmm. if you look, it's it's everything from product to developer to QA to support. Where are we spending the time? Where are the bottlenecks occurring? And are those occurring because there's a lack of collaboration, right? Or is someone siloed? Has product begun to create requirements and develop stories and make decisions without informing engineering leadership so that they can re-estimate or reassign, right? Is engineering not telling support what's coming or go to market team what's coming so that they're ready to sell it on the market and are ready to support it the first day it goes live. So it's really breaking silos is cultural, measuring the um, the participation in the steps of like a product development life cycle um, or a go-to-market life cycle is really important because you will see where deliverables have not crossed a boundary mm-hmm. or deliverables crossed a boundary in an inadequate way. And then you'll know that uh, silos are reoccurring and collaboration is broken down. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it seems that in terms of, yeah, the, the feedback loops and everything that that would be really, I mean, you just, you need information in order to, 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 to sort of plot a course forward. Um, cool. Interesting. The, um, so the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, so aqua hires, um, just a fact of life in tech. I mean, it's, it's some seasons, it seems like there's, there's tons of acquisitions left and right, tons of aqua hires. Other times it kind of seems to drop off. And, um, for many companies, I've also, I mean, I've been subject to a few in my time and I'm sure you've been subject to a ton. Um, it seems difficult for a lot of companies to do them well. And there's a lot of cultural and logistical issues. There's, as you're saying, like transparency issues, feedback issues, companies don't quite have the data. It seems that they need to carry it off successfully. Um, and since you've been involved in a number of them, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about how developers, tech professionals, et cetera, can make that transition as individuals and teams in an effective way. Cause it seems like so much of the time everyone goes in with good intentions and it doesn't necessarily happen. And then you have kind of a disaster on your hands. Um, and it, obviously it's a topic everyone's interested in. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Sure. So I I've been acquired. I've done acquiring uh, at fire. We acquired about 25 companies over the oh, last wow. two years. Mm-hmm. So we've had like a lot of experience because we've done small companies. We've done larger companies and everyone's unique, right? Because that product that you're buying or that team that you're acquiring fits in the organization differently. And so I, I think it begins with relationship building. When you go through starting in the due diligence process, you have to start building authentic, real deep relationships amongst the folks in the acquiring, acquired company and the acquiring company across multiple departments, right? Mm-hmm. Normally, you keep the people under the tent pretty small, and then all of a sudden you announce it. And let's say you're the co-founder of a medium-sized company you've just been acquired. As the co-founder of that company, you did marketing, finance, HR, and you built some of the product. And you've joined a bigger company. And all of a sudden, there's an HR department. So they're like, okay, you don't need to do that anymore. We're going to do it all for you. Oh, you don't need to do finance. We're going to do all the finance for you. And by the way, we're going to do the marketing too. And we know you were CEO, but now you're a mid-level manager in the engineering organization. You have to be very conscious of the emotional impact of that. So you really need to have the relationships so people know who to talk to. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you switch over payroll systems and all of a sudden my paycheck doesn't look right. 
you don't want to have to be like, I need to talk to somebody in HR. You want to know you talk to Bob in HR, right? And there needs to be clarity of transition of um, tasks and duties and responsibilities, Mm -hmm. uh, what your new role is going to be, how it's going to contribute to the company. And it usually comes down to people want to feel like what they do adds value. And as that massive context change occurs between being a contributor in the acquired company to the acquirer, you need to provide the context to those folks to say, this is how what you're doing is still important to everyone and how it adds value to the company. Because it might shift. AppFire is 200 applications. When we go buy another application, you'll be 201. Mm-hmm. Well, you went from the single application you developed, and that was the single most important thing, to a portfolio of 200 plus. How do you fit into that? How are you still important in that? And why are you still matter, still valuable? And what's your opportunity in the new entity? It seems, and I'm saying this from a from a sort of a blinkered perspective, because I've been through two acquisitions. Obviously, I, I've spoken to enough people who have been through them before, but it seems like a lot of acquisitions are done under, you know, understandably conditions of some secrecy. And so, if you're whether you're a project manager or a specialist or an executive or whatever, you might not. Nobody's come to you beforehand and asked you to kind of break down your role and explain what you do and how you're so vital to whatever the project is that you're building. And so there's almost kind of a fog of war when an acquire or an acquisition happens and the people in the new structure don't necessarily understand what you do. And it seems that that's a problem that happens again and again, like that lack of transparency, that lack of information. Um, how do you think companies can sort of move past that while still maintaining everything that they may need to maintain in terms of secrecy? Is it a matter of just everyone doing a deep download as soon as it happens and trying to scramble to have maximum transparency and information? I mean, it just, it always seems like that's the huge speed bump that everyone hits with these kinds of things. It is. So, and one of the things that you see happen is, so like for me, I'm usually involved from the beginning because I'm doing some portion of the due diligence. And that due diligence can last, you know, from a month to six months to a year. A lot transpires in what is going to be shocking to the person when we announce it is old hat for me. I've done it. I've been in those conversations. I know what the plan is. I know why we didn't do certain things. And then you announce it. And those folks don't have the context of the last six months and everything that's transpired. And it's very confusing. So being able to do a deep debrief of This is why we bought this company. These are the roles in this company. This is how they're going to fit into the new company. This is why we did this and not that is really important. And doing that debrief is hard because it's months of decision-making and data being dropped all at once. So one of the things that we like to do and that I've seen done effectively elsewhere is you essentially do foreign exchange. You bring teams from the acquired company and have them sit with the teams of the acquirer and vice versa. And you get to know those folks and you get to know what they do and they have the opportunity to understand how they fit in. And it's, it's less of the kind of a red step, redheaded stepchild experience where you're just plopped in the middle of a foreign land. If you've ever taken a foreign language class at school where in that class, they only spoke Spanish or, in, or Japanese or whatever, very disconcerting. Or if you've traveled internationally, you don't want that to be experienced when you acquire somebody. You want everyone to be speaking the same language, doing the same things and having a a cultural blend that's very smooth and communication is the key to doing that and really context and explaining why certain actions were taken and not how people fit in and don't is what really gets you accelerated to get past the emotion of the acquisition into the productivity that is meant to come with the acquisition. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. The other thing too, is that 
it always seems to me that tech professionals who get caught up in these things, I mean, there's obviously the surprise. I mean, even if you sort of suspect that's happening, because there's always the rumor mill, there's always kind of the surprise and the uncertainty and everything like that. And some companies deal with it well and some companies don't in terms of getting everybody on the same page, making people feel at least as relaxed as they can, given the uncertainty and the potential chaos and everything else. What advice do you have for if I'm a developer or an engineer or somebody and I'm caught up in this in an aqua hire or something like that, and I'm trying to find my bearings, what's your advice to them? I mean, how do you proceed to this strange new land? Right. So one of the things I always tell people as we go through it is assume good intention. Mm-hmm. If your name was left off an org chart or you didn't get a communication, don't assume something bad. Assume that it was a mistake and needs to be addressed. The other one is don't let ambiguity drive insanity, right? When there's ambiguity, people tend to fill it in with worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. So if you have a question, ask the question. If you have a question, everyone else has the exact same question. They're also just a little bit shy about asking it, right? And so mm-hmm. as the Folks doing their acquiring, you have to provide the opportunity for discussion and questions to be asked. And there should be no questions that are off limits. And there should be just real vulnerability and transparency. But as the person who's being put into that spot, if you don't understand something or you're, you're concerned about something, go ask someone. Because it's almost always a positive, not a negative. And it was either an oversight, a confusion. You know, you said fog of war. Fog of war is very true. Stuff moves really fast, really at the end of an acquisition, a ton is happening. It's easy for something to be forgotten. So assume people are good, assume that you have a place and that when something doesn't seem right, just go ask somebody and it'll get fixed. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And that's it, folks. That was a fascinating conversation with Ed. And here are a few takeaways from our discussion that hopefully you can use as you go through your own days and your own workflows. First, It's important to keep in mind that AI isn't going to instantly solve all of your problems and challenges in the workplace, especially if you're in a project management position. As AI tools and services become more sophisticated, you should think of them as force multipliers, freeing up time and resources so you can focus on things that truly matter. It's an enhancement for work, not a replacement. Second, scaling up is a key goal at many tech companies. However, scale isn't something you achieve purely through tools or even tactics. Instead, It comes down to building an effective culture that allows you to recognize great opportunities and work toward them. You ultimately need people who are engaged, well-trained, and who know what they're doing. Third, siloing is a huge issue in so many companies. A lack of transparency and an inability to share learnings and data can prevent teams and companies from achieving their goals. In the end, solving for silos comes down to the three C's, communication, coordination, and collaboration. If teams can effectively communicate, coordinate, and collaborate, those silo walls will hopefully come crashing down. Fourth, if you're going through an acquisition or an acquihire, you can make a difficult process a little easier by assuming good intentions by all parties involved in the transaction. Don't let the uncertainties of the situation drive you completely insane. Instead, make a point of asking questions and doing your best to keep lines of communication open. We covered a whole lot of other topics during the episode, of course, so give it a re-listen if there was something you missed. We'll see you next time, and remember... Dice is your best resource to find the tech talent you need to fill your open roles, and for tech pros, the best place to grow your tech career.